Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor, and this is the podcast where we take you through the most debated, discussed, and important issues, events, and ideas in the history of the Catholic Church. You can find us on the web at churchcontroversies.com with our website, on Facebook, also on uh, social media, Twitter, and uh, a YouTube channel as well. Please like and subscribe to all these. Uh, the podcast is available on all the major podcasting platforms. Uh, welcome again uh, to our series on liberation theology. And this is episode three, Liberation Struggles, 1968 to 1980. Now, in the second episode, we talked about the emergence of liberation theology out of the experience of the generation of priests who came basically before, just before the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council, emerged into a rapidly changing Latin American world, which was becoming, you know, uh, torn by, uh, by violence and by poverty. And then the institutional emergence of this at the meeting of Latin American bishops in 1968 at Medellin, where you have the bishops for the first time seem to embrace some of these progressive theological ideas. Now, uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about how there's both progress but also opposition uh, to this new movement. And I want to start out talking about the political situation again as you get into the, the 1970s in Latin America, because in the 1970s, you're going to have the left on the march in Latin America. You're going to have guerrilla warfare erupting in a lot of places, places like Uruguay. You're going to have late 60s, early 70s, uh, a group called the Tupamaros emerge, and the Tupamaros were students, young professionals in the late 1960s who started out doing sort of Robin Hood, you know, robbing banks, stealing from food warehouses and giving to the poor type stuff, and graduated to political kidnappings and assassinations in the early 1970s. What happens is, as you'll see in almost all of these countries, the military will step in and uh, take over the country in 1973, and democracy will only return in the 1980s. And just to give one uh, one little fact here, later on in the 2000s, a member of this group, the Tupamaros, will become president of Uruguay. Uh, he'll introduce, he was a, a high-ranking member of this, you can call it a guerrilla group, a terrorist group, it's all the same thing. Uh, he'll introduce as president of Uruguay same-sex marriage and abortion rights. So this is where you're coming from in terms of uh, when I say left, I mean left. In places like Peru, you have the emergence of the Shining Path by the end of the 1970s. Shining Path was a intellectual movement, a branch of Marxist parties in, um, in Peru in the 1960s. Uh, mostly professors at universities, but they were so obnoxious to the other Marxists and communists there, they more or less got shut out, and they left to go organize in the countryside. By the end of the decade, in the 1970s, they had become a militarized, and this is unique in the Western Hemisphere, a Maoist, you know, guerrilla organization. They started launching a series of attacks. I'll talk a little more of this next time in the 1980s. And then finally, just one other example of this, because it happened in a lot of countries. Uh, you have the rise of a group in uh, Argentina called the Montoneros. And they actually were a left-wing Peronist group. You remember um, Juan Perón, the great uh, populist leader of Argentina. Uh, he left a legacy on both the left and the right. And you had this left-wing Peronist group that also began in the 1970s doing political kidnappings, assassinations, 
uh, blowing up buildings, sometimes with people in them, hoping to destabilize the regime. Perón was brought back in 1974, but he expelled them from one of his parties, apparently. They continued their attacks after he dies until the regime falls in 1977. <clears throat> but the big victory for the left in the early 1970s is in Chile, because there, Salvador Allende is elected in 1970. You have a really tight election where the two Christian Democrat candidates split, and by a very slim margin, Salvador Allende, who is an open... Marxist uh, gets elected. I believe he was the only one ever elected, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but he's elected um, with, as you would expect, he does have some support from the Soviets and the KGB. He's never really, he does communicate with them. Um, he's not necessarily totally their man, but they're supporting uh, whatever socialist or Marxist they can do in, in Latin America at that point. And all this leads to, and this is where I'd lead in here, to a to military military personnel across Latin America stepping in and taking over regimes. You have the end of anything like democracy in most countries in Latin America in the 1970s. I want to say only like three or four countries still have anything like elections during the 1970s. Um, two famous examples are in Chile in 1973, Augusto Pinochet takes over. Um, begins brutally suppressing all opposition to the, opposition to the regime. Uh, thousands of people disappear uh, during the regime. Still don't know exactly how many. Um, these are brutal, you know, right-wing dictatorships. Their goal is to wipe out subversives like those left-wing terrorist groups. Uh, uh, same thing happens in um, Argentina in 1977. The military steps in. And they conduct what is sometimes called uh, the Dirty War. It lasts for about six or seven years to 1983, where, you, again, you have people being, you know, shunted off to prison, taken to the disappearing. About 30,000 people is the number I have for the for Argentinian War. Real brutal um, uh, regimes here. And finally, I'll mention one last one toward the end of the 1970s. It's been brutal for a while. The Samosa regime in El Salvador uh, had, you know, Essentially, guerrilla groups out running around trying to hunt down subversives in the late 1980s, 70, excuse me, 1970s. And famously, in 1980, one of them gunned down the Archbishop uh, Oscar Romero uh, while he was saying mass. The same time, I think in the same year, I think shortly thereafter, a group of the, another group of this, you know, run by this regime, uh, raped and killed three nuns, as well as their housekeeper and their daughter. So really violent, brutal, repressive regimes. That uh, and so this is the kind of push pull you have in Latin America in the nineteen seventies. The only triumph <clears throat> that the communists have all throughout this this uh, decade is in one place. That'll be in Nicaragua. Uh, the Soviets tried to influence regimes all over. <clears throat> Uh, Latin America. I mentioned Chile was with their best success, but they attempted this in Peru, in Bolivia, Costa Rica, Argentina, Panama. Uh, nowhere, basically, they have a lot of success, even though they made contacts with all those regimes, the KGB. The one place they did was uh, the Sandinista, another uh, Sandinista group in Nicaragua. In 1979, took, held, uh, uh, attempted a daring 
hostage, uh, took, took the entire Congress of Nicaragua hostage. The next year, with aid from the Cuban and Soviet governments, training and aid from them, they took over. They literally uh, forced Samosa and his, uh, excuse me, forced the regime into exile and took over. And we'll come back to this next time, a little bit here, but also in the 1980s. This is, of course, a huge thing. If you're from America and you're old enough to remember this, this was a big thing in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was president. So you have this state of, you know, brutal guerrilla warfare and uh, violent repression by governments setting the backdrop for a lot of what's going on in the 1970s. So it's in the midst of all this that... Uh, Liberation theology as a movement comes into its own. And they begin to embrace, do they, right after Medellin in 1968, because that's the takeoff point for it, <clears throat> something called dependence theory. This is a theory was uh, uh, devised by a Latin American economist back in the late 1950s, but this is the idea that Latin America was poor, or impoverished countries were poor, because they were on the peripheries of global capitalism. And it was basically the domination of, of global capitalist powers like the United States that was causing this. And that they had to liberate themselves from this. This is part of what plays into their liberation theology. And so you had that triumph at Medellin. However, most of the liberation theologians knew that it was only a first start. They got a few things in those documents. They're kind of, if you read them, they don't sound that radical, again, I mentioned this on the last podcast, that a lot of this they meant to sort of interpret or take away from those documents and use as a practical basis, use the authority of Medellin for, for this, which they did. As one of them uh, said shortly thereafter uh, in the 1980s, remembering all this, I'm quoting here, said, quote, the struggle for the interpretation of the Medellin documents was as or more important than the struggle for the production of the documents. If the documents are seen today as progressive documents, it is because those who were the most active in appropriating, knowing, spreading, and interpreting the documents were the most progressive groups in the church, unquote. So you have a situation in which these groups knew, they knew basically that these documents didn't say what they wanted them to say totally. The whole point was to interpret them. If this sounds familiar to you, this is basically the same sort of strategy that was used by progressive theologians regarding the Second Vatican Council and its documents. We got enough ambiguity there we can work with, we can take this into a practical uh, a practical setting and get what we want that way. And so that is effectively really what is going on in uh, uh, right after Medellin, the next several years. And it's kind of amazing, uh, Christian Smith, the sociologist, talks about this. You know, when it begins in the 19... Uh, 1970s, really only about 30 people involved in this network. It's a, a group of about 30 theologians, all about the same age, you know, late 30s, uh, early 40s, mid 40s, all European trained, who set up this, you know, network of <clears throat> institutes. They, they create, you know, pastoral institutes, educational institutes, uh, liturgical institutes. Uh, they create the positions that they'll have in the church by creating these things. They'll hold conferences nonstop. We'll come back to this. Um, to create the influence they want to have, there's one other thing we'll get to in a moment, are the base communities within the church hierarchy, within those, you know, I mentioned they took over the Latin American Bishops Conference, uh, uh, some of the institutional apparatus there. 
And so you're going to have them emerging because of this. And you're also going to have a series of books being published uh, in the 1970s, where these, these are the founding documents in some ways of liberation theology. The uh, most important of these is, is by um, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, right? These are the most important um, ones published. There are several books. I'll, I'll go, we'll go through all the names here. Uh, we'll get to one of them in a moment, but uh, the biggest one is by Gutierrez, um, and that's toward a theology of liberation. Just to give you an idea where they're, you know, they're coming from here. Just a few choice selections from his work. In that work, uh, he talks about uh, the need for social revolution. Read a couple of quotations here. This is Gustavo Gutierrez. Uh, I'm quoting here, quote, only a radical break from the status quo that is a profound transformation of the private property system, access to power of the exploited class, and a social revolution that would break this dependence, yeah, independence theory, would allow for the change to a new society, a socialist society, or at least allow that such a society might be possible, unquote. Uh, and they conceive of, and Gustieros conceives of, all, not just Latin America, but all of history has to be conceived this way. Another quotation here, quote, to conceive of history as a process of the liberation of man is to consider freedom as an historical conquest. It is to understand that the step from an abstract to a real freedom is not taken without a struggle against all the forces that oppress man. The goal is not only better living conditions, a radical change of structures, a social revolution, it is much more. The continuous creation, never-ending, of a new way to be a man, a permanent cultural revolution, unquote. And he, again, he talks about this in very uh, wide terms, but he also specifically mentions Latin America. We talk about here, he says this here, quote, uh, with regards to Latin America, in Latin America, the church must place itself squarely within the process of revolution amid the violence which is present in different ways. The church's mission is defined practically and theoretically pastorally and theologically in relation to this revolutionary process, unquote. He never comes out and says the church has to participate in violent revolution, but he comes pretty close, seems to suggest it at certain points. And he associates, that, associates this, by the way, with Christ. Another quotation here, quote, For Jesus, the liberation of the Jewish people was only one aspect of a universal permanent revolution. Far from showing no interest in this liberation, Jesus rather placed it on a deeper level with far-reaching consequences, unquote. Uh, and then finally, in talking about the, the world in terms of this, again, it's essentially a Marxist conception of the world, revolution of the oppressed against the oppressors, um, you know, constant struggle, class struggle, I'm not going to go through all this. Uh, he also calls the church to account. This is the other thing that's going to get opposition to arise to this basically uh, implicates the church you know you're either you're either on the side of the oppressed or you're not and m almost all these theologians accuse the church of having in the past um uh, on the side of the oppressors let me read the quote here last one in latin america to be church today means to take a clear position regarding both the present state of social injustice and the revolutionary process which is attempting to abolish that injustice and build a more human order the first step is to recognize that in reality a stand has already been taken the church is tied to the prevailing social system 
In many places, the church contributes to creating a quote-unquote Christian order. Those are his quotation marks, by the way. And to giving a kind of sacred character to a situation which is not only alienating, but is the worst kind of violence. A situation which pits the powerful against the weak, unquote. In other words, they're calling for a break with the past, not only within society, but within the church itself. The church has to participate in this revolution, otherwise it's on the side of the oppressors. And this will take the, the, uh, take the practical form, by the way, of, again, lots of priests and um, especially religious participating in politics in left-wing, sometimes openly Marxist, communist, socialist politics. Uh, 1972, for example, in Chile, just before uh, the year before Alain gets run out, the uh, a bunch of priests in Chile form Christians for Socialism, and so you're going to have this, you know, almost identical, um, more or less almost identical identification of Christianity with socialism on the part of some of these some of these thinkers. Now, having said all that, you all are also going to have you are going to have um, pretty quickly developed some opposition to this. <clears throat> By the uh, 1972, at the, at the latest, you're going to have critics of this process. I'll mention three names. You don't need to do all these names. Um, the two most important are one, a, a, a Belgian Jesuit from Chile, but Belgian uh, by birth, Roger Vekemans, uh, who left Chile shortly after the election of Alain in 1970, who will be very crucial for he'll write a series of articles posing this, trying to expose what it is. And then Alfonso Lopez Trujillo, uh, who is a bishop who become a member of um, the CLAM conference, the Conference of Latin American Bishops in 1972, will be a tireless opponent. Uh, and I'll get, come back to him. He's probably the most important name to know. Although even by 1974, you're going to have people who are otherwise sympathetic start criticizing him. People, a Protestant theologian, for example, Jürgen Moltmann, he writes his criticism of another Protestant liberation theologian, but he'll write a, an essay criticizing uh, liberation theology as, quote-unquote, seminary Marxism, and kind of dismisses it for what he thinks of it as its parochial nature. Um, so you're going to have intellectual um, com, uh, combat coming pretty soon. You're also going to have, shortly thereafter, after uh, Medellin, within a few years, some of the bishops have been become, become uneasy about some of this activity. They thought they were just kind of trying to make a, a you know a bigger stand to help the poor. It begins to sound like the liberation theologians have more political activism in mind, so some of them begin to criticize it. You're also going to be, begin to have uh, elements in Rome uh, begin to criticize it. Uh, but the biggest thing that happens is that they uh, the Conference of Latin American Bishop meets meets again in 1972 at Sucre in uh, Bolivia, uh, Colombia, I think it's Colombia. Uh, they meet at Sucre uh, and in 1972, and behind Lopez Trujillo's, uh, you know, preparations for this. This time, remember last time they got saw, uh, blindsided by the more organized progressive bishops and their allies. They managed to get control of Silam. They purged uh, a lot of the uh, more progressive members from its ranks. They basically um, uh, basically took back control of the bureaucracy associated with it. So this is a sort of turning point. They kind of get kicked out to the liberation theologians of their of their base within the hierarchy, which will have an effect in, uh, in the long run. 
But um, at the same time, it doesn't necessarily undermine their position. In fact, what's going to happen is after 1972, as I already mentioned, you're going to have these dictatorships take over everywhere. And there's going to be persecution, I should mention, in all these countries of the church by these essentially right-wing governments. And it's pretty brutal in many places. Um, in uh, Argentina, Argentina alone in 1977, 17 priests were killed, and a bishop who was critical of the regime died in a suspicious car accident. Uh, arrests, torture of priests was fairly routine in a lot of these countries. And to be fair, there were attacks on some of these liberation theologians and their followers. <clears throat> Uh, one witness talks about how in Guatemala, the police would shoot anyone they caught with Bibles that had passages, shoot and kill them, by the way, who owned Bibles with passages uh, from Exodus or the prophets underlined. And the reason why is because those passages were key texts for liberation theology and their followers, uh, whom they identified as subversives. One theologian, my name Henri Dussel, um, I want to say he's Brazilian, I can't recall, had his house bombed. Uh, Helder Camara, the Red Bishop, or one of them, uh, was actually, they were, actually went through 15 uh, assassination attempts. They never got him. So you do have, um, you do have attacks on priests. You do have attacks on these liberation theologians. I mention all this partly because, again, this is a real problem here, the repression. You know, sometimes... Um, Liberation theologians would invoke, to justify violence, they would invoke the uh, the authority of Thomas Aquinas, right? Because Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, at least in some of his works, said it was okay to, you know, overthrow a tyrant. They weren't totally be they were not being, you know, hypocritical in that or anything like that. They really were in situations that, you know, you can say, well, however it came about, maybe left-wing guerrilla groups helped start it. These are brutal regimes. Uh, and in fact, the these methods of all these countries began to push more neutral bishops into the camps of the liberation theologians uh, who were actively p opposing the regime. You're like, hey, these regimes are brutal. They're punishing us. You're going to go along with the people that are trying to oppose them. And so from 1971 to 1978 or so, you're going to have a bunch of different bishops in a bunch of different countries issue pastoral letters of protest against these regimes, all of them using the word liberation and, you know, uh, quoting themes uh, from these theologians. Literally dozens of them are issued uh, within a, you know, better part of a decade. And so this actually gives, you know, the repression in a way, gives a, a second wind to the liberation theologians. There's a second generation that comes to the fore in the early 1970s, uh, one of the name you may have heard of, Leonardo Boff, is one of the most important. Uh, another Brazilian theologian who studied with Karl Rahner at the University of Munich in the 1960s, published a dissertation in German in 1972 called The Church as Sacrament from the Point of View of Secular Experience. You can kind of get a sense of where he's coming from from the title there. Uh, most famously, in 1974, he publishes a book, uh, or I guess it's 74 in English, I think it's 72 in, in uh in uh, in Spanish, let me see. I have the date there. Yeah, it's 72, originally published in 72. More famously, Jesus Christ Liberator, which as the name kind of implies, he basically sees Jesus as a political revolutionary and a social radical uh, in his commitment to the poor and the oppressed. Uh, again, themes that you probably are familiar with from other places. Boff puts, you know... Um, 
need for human liberation above dogma puts, you know, dialogue ahead of, you get the idea. I'm not going to go through all this, uh, but it's fairly clear where the, all this is going. Uh, another, um, uh, and he was born, by the way, in 1938, still alive, Leonardo Boff is, as is the second name here, John Sobrino, <clears throat> a Spanish-born Jesuit who uh, kind of made his name actually collaborating with Oscar Romero in El Salvador. Already mentioned him. Uh, Romero was is he's been canonized as a saint now. Uh, he's one of the first people was Sobrino to claim Romero for liberation theology. I don't think that's actually true. I know liberation theologians of this day try to claim Romero because he's so beloved. Don't think he ever formally joined the club, even though he echoed some of their themes and some of his homilies and, and pastoral letters. Uh, but he's the first one, I think, one of the people to write a book about him in 1981, calling him a saint and a martyr. Uh, and so um, he's definitely in the second wave. And then finally, uh, one I have to mention in detail here, Ernesto Cardinal, uh, from an upper-class uh, family in Nicaragua. He is he was known, he's dead now, he died in 2020, uh, was a poet as well as a priest, but got himself educated in New York City uh, uh, in literature. He actually took part in a, an abortive 1954 revolution against the Somoza government, uh, in Nicaragua, which failed. Many of his collaborators were killed. He went into hiding. In 1956, he actually experienced what he called a conversion experience. And he went to the to uh, to a study at a monastery, a Trappist monastery in Kentucky, the Abbey of Gethsemane. Maybe that's ringing bells with you. Yeah, that's that monastery, the Monastery of Thomas Merton, uh, where he studied for two years in 1957 before illness forced him to go back to Latin America. And eventually he gets ordained in 1965. He founded a community, uh, a sort of quasi, I guess, monastic community on an island in Lake Nicaragua, where he spent the better part of the next decade. But he has a second experience which changes him, uh, which is a visit to Cuba in 1970. He's Fidel Castro, abandons his uh, earlier pacifism and convince him revolution is necessary. Uh, in Nicaragua, and from then on, he becomes involved with the Sandinista movement, acting as a spokesman, uh, while other, I don't think he ever fights with them, while others of his community fight with them, actually fight and die with them. And so when the Sandinistas take over in 1979, he becomes Minister of Culture, while well, he's still a priest, with the Sandinista government, the communist government, as does his brother, uh, who's also a priest, becomes a member of the government. So you're having, you know, uh, this second generation come about, which is even more radical in some ways, in my point, than the first generation. And while finally you have, and you also have the growth of base communities. So while initially they lost their foothold in the bishops' conferences there, at least in the Latin American structure, Many of the institutes associated with it were still associated, still staffed with uh, sympathizers. Many parish clergy and religious also were uh, influenced by it and, uh, and supportive of it. So they kept their strength up this way, despite opposition from many bishops who remained more conservative. Uh, most especially, um, the base communities were crucial. Uh, the base communities were uh, booming by the 1970s. By the end of the 1970s, some 200,000 existed in Latin America. And again, I'll reiterate this. Not all of these base communities were vehicles for liberation theology, but many of them did. Um, what happened was, uh, you know, liberation theology supporters would conduct training courses for what they called animators, community animators, animadores, whom they would send into parishes 
with the goal of stimulating, and I'm quoting here, quote, a new and more radical religious consciousness within those at the base, unquote. Uh, and the main event in these 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 um, these base communities for these liberation theologians were weekly meetings where they would read the Bible, or read passages from the Bible, lay people would, and interpret those in the light of the events and experiences of the community and how they related to them. And you can kind of see how easily that could be easily bleed into activism because, and this is, again, this is one of the things I would say is a good thing about the base communities, during these periods of repression in these countries where censorship is almost universal, these are the only centers of opposition, basically, to the government. And so you have you can see how this bled into not just opposition to the government, but to propagating Marxism and stuff like that. Although I should point out, a lot of these, these base communities never succumbed to this. So... Again, don't want to totally identify them with that, but they did try to do that, and that's where they had a lot of support. They also had a lot of uh, support institutionally from religious orders, sympathetic religious orders, above all the Jesuits. Uh, orders like that couldn't be as easily controlled. Uh, Rome couldn't easily con as easily control them as they could the bishops. And besides this, they still kept creating new institutes. Um, some of them even created new uh, publishing houses, uh, the Marinol order, which is kind of associated with this, uh, started a publishing house, which publishes all their works to this day to get their message out. Major international conferences are held in Mexico City in 1975, and as well as in Detroit. And in 1976, they hold a conference in Tanzania, uh, aligning themselves with the quote-unquote indigenous theologies coming out of Africa and Asia. So they're broadening their networks, despite the uh, persecution in Latin America uh, at the same time. Um, by the way, if you're wondering where all this is being funded from, it's funding from outside the church, basically, outside of Latin America anyway, from Catholic agencies in, in Germany, the USCCB, but also from, uh, from ecumenical and Protestant bodies, the World Council of Churches, the National Council of Churches in the United States, as well as Methodist and Lutheran churches. They're taking, again, their ecumenical ties and they're giving them support for this. Uh, which is a battle both in and outside the church, the Catholic church itself. Now, <clears throat> the focus, as you can kind of see, of the struggle within the Catholic church in Latin America here <clears throat> is becoming CLAM. And in fact, uh, originally, after 1975, from about 1975, the, the plan was to have another meeting of it in 1978. Uh, it is postponed. It's postponed because of the deaths of first Paul VI and then John Paul I shortly thereafter in 1978. And what's going to happen is you're going to have uh, a battle go on to try to get control of this next meeting. And in fact, the conservative opposition is going to be much more organized for this. In fact, uh, Alfonso Trujillo uh, manages to select most of the participants for the next conference um, himself personally. Most of the rest of the bishops were chosen, and virtually all of the major liberation theologians were shut out <laughs> from its proceedings. And only about 80 progressive, so uh, quote-unquote, bishops were actually allowed to attend. And so this is one tactic they use to these, uh, do these uh, opponents of theirs. However, uh, the liberation theologians will... will in order to fight back, they'll do a couple of things. One, they'll hold their own sort of press conferences and little meetings outside the, uh, the conferences themselves. And they will also liaison with their friends who are bishops in the conference itself. So again, they have, uh, they maintain some sort of ability to, uh, to oppose what's going on. 
At the same time, this is probably the most important thing here, critics uh, led by Trujillo begin to um, develop a, a line of argument that's going to eventually help undermine liberation theology, and that is to try to reclaim the concept of liberation from those liberation theologians. Um, their main thrust, and I have to say this about Trujillo, even some of his critics among the liberation theologians recognize this, Trujillo, Trujillo did not condemn every single instance of liberation theology. He recognized that there is a biblical idea of liberation, which, yes, does have something to do with liberating the poor uh, in a social sense. This is pretty obvious if you read the prophets, if you read some of the Old Testament. There is, there is something of that there. However, the criticism, this will be the big thing here, is that by focusing on social revolution so much, they turn the Bible and the faith into a vehicle for political revolution. Rather, and they, they, uh, they basically submerge the supernatural elements of liberation from sin and death. Uh, and they'll also criticize he and another um, uh, participant at, that, uh, at the upcoming uh, meeting, which is at Puebla, by the way, in Mexico. So there's preparations for the meeting in Puebla. They'll criticize the tendency to subordinate uh, evangelization for political activism. This is an idea that will show up in the documents at Puebla. You'll find it in every subsequent criticism, basically, of uh, liberation theology. It'll get into the criticisms that, as we get to the, the last episode next time, the criticisms that Rome makes uh, against it. And it's one of the more powerful lines of argument. It also happens to be true. <laughs> so, but uh, Trujillo deserves a lot of credit, is my point, for all of this. The other thing that, of course, changes things by the end of the 1980s, this is what I'm getting to at the end here of this episode, is, of course, the election of John Paul II. Paul VI had never been a liberation theologian, but he was a man of the left. Uh, Paul VI, uh, Papa Montini, was a is a left-winger, and he was a humanist at heart, and so he had some sympathy, a lot, actually, a lot more than anybody else in Rome had for the liberation theologians. Well, as I'm sure you know, Carol Botiva had a very, very different view of anything inspired by Marxism. <clears throat> of course, coming as he did from Poland, which had been taken over by the, <laughs> by the Soviets after World War II, had installed a puppet government in Poland, labored under the totalitarian regime in Poland, hated Marxism and had nothing to do with it. Uh, this is a big turning point in a lot of ways, is the point. And that we'll see, it's kind of the beginning of the end, actually. They didn't know it at the time, but it will be the uh, beginning of their downfall. Uh, and so you have these battles um, uh, occurring. I'm, I'll come back to John Paul in a second, uh, second, but you have these preliminary battles about what the conference is going to talk about, the Pueblo meeting uh, of CLAM. Uh, and in fact, the uh, conference under the, again, the leadership of Trujillo publishes a green book at you know, pre-meetings pre, uh, pre in 1977, which outlines a very conservative, anti-liberation theologian agenda, which yeah, liberation theologians criticize for, quote, ignoring the poor and the need for a new society, unquote. Trujillo writes a response, claiming that the Green Book only ignores the poor if you equate po the poor, if you equate that with Marxism, basically. Uh, and in fact, the liberation theologians have been organizing for Puebla since 1976, uh, and they're going to have some influence on the meeting. They're going to be, uh, outside of the meeting, there going to be demonstrations um, for and against liberation theology, which is going to draw a lot of attention <clears throat> to the proceedings. And I should mention this. 
until 1979, most people outside of Latin America would not have known what liberation theology was. It was a very much a Latin American phenomenon. The only people who would have known would have been the friends of those theologians themselves in other countries. Uh, Puebla changes that. Uh, cameras will come there. And one of the reasons for that is that John Paul II comes to open the proceedings. And so you have all the world's media coming to see John Paul II. You're going to have a bunch of people, some 25 million people, Puebla's in Mexico, come to see him um, when he uh, when he goes there to open the meeting. And this is, again, probably the first time many outside of Latin America had ever heard of it. So it brings it to this attention. So it raises the stakes in that regard. And when he comes there, uh, John Paul II gives a speech to the assembled bishops in which he echoes many of the concerns of liberation theologians, their support for the poor, um, their, you know, their, their need to be you know, relieved of oppression, the need for social justice, the need for regimes to respect human rights, right? This is in the context in which these brutal regimes are, uh, well, they're brutalizing people uh, in the name of uh, you know, order, state security, and stuff like this. So uh, this is one of his... Um, one of his themes, but he also, in the same speech, condemns what he calls "quote unquote" rereadings of the gospel that turn Christ into a revolutionary. He also criticizes the tendency of theologians to identify the kingdom of God with the secular world, and efforts to reduce liberation to political strategy. Uh, while at the same time denying, and here I'm quoting from his lecture itself, while denying. Christian liberation's deeper meaning, which according to John Paul II is, and I'm here quote, liberation from sin and the evil one, unquote. In other words, while acknowledging liberation theology's concerns, he criticizes their excesses. He criticizes the larger framework in which they're conducting you know, their efforts to help the poor. And I should, em I should emphasize this here. If you haven't uh, again, I, I said at the beginning of this series, I, I don't like liberation theology. I don't think much of it. I think it's basically a bad thing for the church. I think it was ultimately harmful. Their concerns about the poor, their concerns about those regimes, they were, for that, I, I'm basically on their side. Um, what's wrong with it are all the ideas they brought to it, which go way beyond merely trying to to, to oppose a corrupt, brutal regime, and go way beyond merely trying to improve the lives of the poor. That's the problem. The means they, the means they hit upon were Marxist criticism. And again, for a lot of reasons, I'll come back to this at the end of the last episode, but, uh, and this is exactly what John Paul II and some of the conservative critics pointed out. Now, as it happens... Even though the conservatives had control of this mostly, the uh, progressive bishops inside the conference had enough influence that the documents produced by them uh, basically reflected a conflict. It got enough of um, the, the ideas of the liberation theologians into those documents, the final document especially, at Medellin, that they got their concerns addressed somewhat. But again, it basically produced a document that was kind of like, and I hate to be putting this comparison in here, but it makes it's what it reminds me of. It kind of it's kind of like some of the documents of the Second Vatican Council. You have these documents which seem to say fairly traditional things on the one hand, and on the other parts they say these things that sound like they're wildly opposed to each other. 
And so the result is, according to one liberation theologian, a final document that was permeated by, quote, conflicting visions of church and society, unquote. In other words, throughout this period where you first have organized opposition to the uh, to the liberation theology movement, uh, it ends in a stalemate at Puebla. Both sides were looking for uh, victory. They don't get it, but they both basically come away thinking, okay, we're going to control the future here. Uh, and so that's where I'm going to stop here. Um, we're going to get, get at the end of the 1970s. You have the growth, but also some opposition. They're still in a strong position by the end of the 1970s, our liberation theologians. But next time, we're going to see how both through um, pressures exerted upon the movement, both from Rome itself, uh, from their opponents within uh, the Latin American church, but also from changing fortunes of history. And it's kind of an ironic thing, because one of the things liberation theologians put a big emphasis on was the church needs to listen to recent historical experience. History is the guide you know, historical experience is the guide to truth, not dogma, not revelation, basically. And I'm not, I'm not overdoing it, by the way. They, they talk about theology being primarily, first and foremost, a reflection not on the deposit of the faith or divine revelation, but a reflection on the experience of the people. Well, what's going to happen is the experience of the people changes <laughs> in the 1980s and 90s. And so in our last episode, should be our last episode, might be our last episode next time, episode four, we'll talk about the decline and fall, how liberation theology goes from being what seems like the wave of the future to being by the early uh, 1990s to already basically being um, a part of the past and a dead letter. So if you like this episode, you like what we're doing here, please uh, go to our uh, Facebook page, like it, go uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you can find it, subscribe to our YouTube channel, go visit um, the uh, uh, website, churchcontroversies.com. I have uh, material up there besides um, besides links to the, uh, to the uh, podcast. I have articles I've written for uh, for Crisis Magazine, other stuff I've written. I have a blog there on my own, so please go check it out. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, God bless you all, and you'll hear from me next time. Take care, y'all. <laughs>